Father, we're thankful for this opportunity that we can come before you in prayer this evening, that we can uh, remember people in the congregation who are facing serious illnesses, and you know who they are. And we just pray that you would watch over them, give them strength, strengthen their families, may their illness be an opportunity for them to demonstrate uh, your grace in their lives and for them to be a witness to uh, friends and family as they're going through difficult times. Father, we pray for us as we're here this evening studying your word that we may be sharp and be able to concentrate and think and come to a greater appreciation and understanding of your plan and purposes in human history and especially the demonstration of your righteousness among the nations. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to give this a shot. Somebody sent me this link the other day to a YouTube video and I think that the way that this is working, it is obviously not God's will for us to watch this this evening. Oh, maybe it, maybe it came through, maybe not. We're going to... Uh, Give it one try. Oh, it's not loading up. Okay. That is obviously not something we're going to do this evening. Let me see. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Did y'all hear that? No. Let me get this. Lean on me when you're not strong I just thought that was an interesting little video, creative little 
mind out there came up with that. Okay, let's uh, open our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I want to do a little review. We're going to start Romans 11 tonight, but I want to put things in context a little bit, part of which is going to entail uh, a review of what we covered last week in Romans 10. I had at least two people say, we need to go through this at least one more time. So um, Romans 10 is, is, is tough, but uh, Romans 11 pulls things together. We see the whole context. So I wanted to go back to Romans 9 at the beginning and just sort of walk our way through uh, Romans 9, Romans 10 in terms of an overview before we get into Romans 11. So let's just go to the very beginning as we've talked about. Romans 9, 10, and 11 fit together. Romans 9 demonstrates the righteousness of God and his rejection of national Israel. Remember, when you think of Romans, the word that you ought to think of is righteousness because the book of Romans is all about God's righteousness, the fact that human beings don't have it, they need it. Uh, God gives it to us on the basis of faith alone. And then because we are justified and as part of our salvation package we're baptized by the holy spirit we're given a new a new identity we're no longer slaves to the sin nature but we are now slaves to what righteousness in romans chapter 6 so romans 6 7 and 8 talks about how we are to live a righteous life now that we're declared righteous but then we get to romans 9, 10, and 11, and the focus is on Israel. And so the question is, how does Israel sort of fit this theme? And it fits it in this way. Romans 9 demonstrates the righteousness of God in terms of his rejection of national Israel. Romans 10 demonstrates that that rejection is based on the prior rejection of Israel of God's revelation. They have neglected and rejected God's revelation to them. This is that passage, the quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, that the word of God is near you, and they have rejected it. Romans 11 then answers the question, has God cast away in the sense of permanently cast away his people Israel? And the answer is a resounding no. He still has a plan for national ethnic Israel. A quote from one of the most well-known scholarly commentaries on Romans by C.E.B. Cranfield in the International Critical Commentary Series, he makes an important observation when he says, these three chapters, Romans 9 to 11, emphatically forbid us to speak of the church as having once and for all taken the place of the Jewish people. Now, if you remember when we started Romans 9, what I wanted to do was to take you through two important issues related to Israel. The first had to do with replacement theology, and the second had to do with that which came out of replacement theology, which was anti-Semitism. And so what Cranfield is saying here is that this chapter prevents us, if we're going to interpret it correctly, it and prevents us from going into replacement theology. He says, but the assumption that the church has simply replaced Israel as the people of God is extremely common. I confess with shame to having also myself used in print on more than one occasion this language of the replacement of Israel by the church. So Romans 9 to 11 is the uh, stake in the heart of replacement theology. 
Now, let's just sort of think about it a little bit. We'll look at the first paragraph, Romans 9, 1 through 5, gives us a glimpse into Paul's personal passion for this, the salvation of his fellow Israelites. He expresses his profound grief for their spiritual condition, and here we see that, that, that Paul is expressing the priority of the message of salvation to the Jewish people, and that is still true today. I know that there are some Messianic Jews like Arnold Fruchtenbaum who still believe the principle is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I believe that what, that principle's priority died out at the with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That was part of the transition period in the period from the cross to the final uh, execution of God's judgment on Israel in AD 70. Nevertheless, there is a priority on taking the gospel to the Jewish people. But we have to understand some things as evangelicals when it comes to taking the gospel to the Jewish people. And number one is that different people respond differently to the gospel. And the Jewish people have had a history where they're extremely sensitive to Christians who are coming to them uh, and start talking about Jesus just right off the bat because it shows a certain level of insensitivity. They've had thousands of years of Christian anti-Semitism, and they would rather be viewed as a person. They love to have a good relationship with Christians, but they don't want to have the uh, sense that they're just uh, another opportunity for another notch on your gospel gun or that you're just going to uh, you're looking at them as just another target of opportunity, and because you're in the presence of somebody Jewish, you need to start witnessing to them within the third breath. Now, there are a couple of people in this congregation who really haven't gotten that message yet. There's always one or two that go on a trip to Israel that I find out later don't get that message no matter how many times you tell people. They think that you just sit down with somebody Jewish, and for, within the first two paragraphs, you've got to start talking about Jesus. And that is foolish, and it's not not good sense. You build a relationship with people. What I found in the Jewish community is that sooner or later people start asking me questions, and that's the best time to to respond, to to create a friendship that's not a friendship because uh, you want to witness to them. You're friends because you're friends. And as a result of that, eventually you'll get an opportunity to communicate the gospel clearly. And then you have to understand your target audience, and some Jews are agnostic, and they really don't know Genesis from Revelation. They don't know Genesis from Second Chronicles. They don't know Psalms from Proverbs because they have never, about the only time they show up at, at, at their local uh, synagogue is on one of the high holy days. And and that's it. And it's more of a social, racial, ethnic, historical thing than it is anything else. And they don't take any of it seriously at all. And then there are others that do. And I find that there are some who who would like to take it seriously, but they've heard uh, so many intellectual objections to really believing the Bible that that gets in the way. So there's a lot of different things to just kind of work through, and I find that asking questions in any kind of witnessing situation, I find that asking questions is a really good way to approach it, but it's a slow way to approach it because it takes time. You ask somebody a question, then you have to hear what they think. And and a lot of Christians don't want to hear what the unbeliever thinks. They just want to tell them what they're supposed to think. 
and so they get impatient. But, but Paul has a great desire to see the Jewish people justified, to see them uh, accept Jesus as their Messiah, not just for the fact that this has a significance for how God's plan will work out, but because he knows that that's the only way for them to be, uh, to be in heaven. So Paul places a high value upon the justification of the Jewish people. And he values them because, as we read in, in verse 2, or, or <clears throat> in verse 4 and 5, rather, that they are Israelites uh, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom or from whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So he recognizes the, the value and significance of the Jewish people because they, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the ones through whom God is going to bless the entire world. They're the center of human history. And, and everything revolves around God's plan for the Jewish people, even in the church age. Because once they start returning, once there's a turning back, this is going to all this is going to shift. So in those first five verses, we see this emphasis on, on the importance of the Jewish people. And he also concludes in verse 5 with one of the strongest statements on the deity of Christ in the, in the New Testament, where he says, and remember I reworked the word order there, Christ, uh, <clears throat> Christ, the eternally blessed God who is over all, amen identifying Christ as the eternally blessed God. Now the next section is from 9, chapter 9, verses 6 through 9, and the principle that's laid down here is that not all Israel is Israel. Now when we get to Romans 11, we're going to develop that a little more, understanding that that within ethnic Israel there are those who are, who are uh, saved, those who are spiritually regenerate, and that's the remnant. And so he develops the remnant doctrine. This sort of foreshadows it here, but we get to it in Romans chapter 11. Here he's talking about not all Israel is Israel because not all of them have understood uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so this is the principle that not all Israel is Israel. But he goes on at this point to talk about just the physical generation aspect, and that physical generation from Abraham is not enough. And he couches it in terms of the descendants of Abraham that were not the seed, because he had Ishmael, and then after Isaac, that he mar- after Sarah died, he married Keturah, and had other sons through through that marriage. And it's only through Isaac that the line is named. Verse 7, and Isaac your seed shall be called. And what happened among the Jewish people is that they began to think that they were going to go to heaven because of their relationship to Abraham. And it's interesting that here in Romans chapter 9 we see this emphasized. Uh, Verse 8, I mean verse 7 brings it out, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Verse 8, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Now here I pointed out that this is not talking about regeneration here. This is talking about the children of the promise, which goes through Abraham and his son Isaac, and then his son uh, Jacob, 
and then the twelve the twelve sons. But it's against this background of thinking relationship to Abraham is everything. And in a couple of weeks in Matthew, when John the Baptist began his ministry and began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we're told that all of Judea and all of the uh, all of Galilee came out to hear him, and all were being baptized. And among the all that were coming out to see him were Pharisees who were coming to evaluate his ministry, which was their which was a normal uh, responsibility and part of their uh, leadership responsibilities to in, identify or investigate anybody who had any kind of messianic claims. Now John wasn't claiming to be the Messiah, but he was fun- functioning as the forerunner of the Messiah. And so when the Pharisees came out. He called them a brood of vipers and said, Why have you come out here to flee from the wrath of God? And he followed that up in verse 9 by saying, And do not think to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, John said, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. See, he's particularly pointing out this flaw in their thinking that physical descent from Abraham is all you needed to get to heaven. Same thing that Paul is pointing out here in in, Romans. Romans 9, uh, 6-9. And the promise, the children of the children of the promise, and the promise is specifically identified in verse 9 as, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. It's not, at this time I will come and you will believe on me and have eternal life. It's not a spiritual eternal life issue. It, it, it's, a, it's a destiny issue, God's plan and purpose for ethnic Israel. And this is one of the uh, most important things that we see uh, coming out of this. And then as we get on into the next section in Romans chapter, uh, I mean Romans 9, 10 to 12, it introduces this concept of election, that God makes a choice. Now we're going to get into that more when we get into Romans 11, but God chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved. All of a sudden, everybody sort of tenses up a little bit. I didn't say on what basis he made the choice. The scripture isn't real clear on what basis he made the choice, except for one or two places, like in 1 Peter 1, 2, which says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge is a subset of God's omniscience. In God's omniscience, he knows everything that could happen might happen, should have happened, would have happened, could have happened, and will happen. He knows all the options, all the alternatives, but he knows what will happen. And on the basis of his foreknowledge, he makes choices. Now, we're not exactly told all the details that go into that, but you have basically two options. Either God makes choices apart from his knowledge which means he's just making random, haphazard um, choices willy-nilly, or he's making choices on the basis of his knowledge and reason in terms of what is best for his overall plan, in which case he is taking into account his knowledge. In Calvinism, where you have unconditional election, what they are saying is God's choice is not based on any conditions. Well, the Bible may not state that there are conditions, but the lack of evidence does not mean that that there are no conditions. 
The lack of stated conditions does not mean that there aren't any conditions and that God doesn't take any conditions into account. And God takes into account our volition. Now, volition can be, or the conditions, let's say, the conditions that God takes into account when he makes a decision can be meritorious or they can be non-meritorious. Meritorious means that somehow man would do something in order to gain God's favor. Non-meritorious would mean that there's nothing that man can do to gain God's favor, but in the act of faith or trust, man is trusting in someone else who has done something to gain God's favor. And that's the gospel, that we trust in Jesus Christ. He's the one who did the work. He's the one who gained God's favor. Faith is non-meritorious the way we look at it. Now, in Calvinism, they're internally consistent in their system. Faith is meritorious, and God gives the elect person faith. So this is an assault on personal accountability and personal volition. So, and, and, and we get into this as we get into this, the two examples uh, that are given here, actually three examples that are given. Uh, one has to do with the statement, Jacob I loved and Esau I, I hated. This is not talking about choice for personal individual justification. It's talking about a national destiny. All through Romans 9, 10, and 11, the issue is nation, nation, nation. God has the right and the authority as the sovereign of the universe to select whom he will for in terms of roles and responsibilities in his plan uh, for the nations. And so uh, Jacob is loved. It's not that Esau is personally despised. Even even back in in the original uh, Genesis account in Genesis uh, 25, the the focus is on the nations that the two infants struggling in the womb are um, are representative of the nations that will come from them, and so the focus here is on national destiny. And then later, there's an example given from Moses. And Moses is, is, it's not a context of justification, but it's a context of blessing the people. And what we learn here is a principle that goes through Romans 10, and that is a basic understanding of three different types of salvation that the Bible talks about, three stages. Sometimes it's, they're talked about as three tenses of salvation. Phase one, justification takes place in an instant in time when a person trusts in Christ and at that instant, we're saved from the penalty of sin, eternal condemnation, and that is a one-time event. Phase two is an ongoing process. We're saved every day as we learn the word and apply it. This is sanctification or spiritual life where we are saved from the power of sin. And then phase three is our ultimate completion of the salvation process where we are saved from the presence of sin when we're glorified and face-to-face with the Lord. So Paul talks in Romans 5.11 about having been justified, we will in the future be saved. So in Romans, salvation is a term that is not synonymous with justification. And so it's very important to understand that this event in Moses' life is taking place in relationship to the spiritual life of the nation Israel and God's decisions, how he will use them. And then we have another example given in verse 17 of Pharaoh. 
And this always confuses people, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And again, that wasn't in terms of a justification decision, but in terms of a predetermined state that the Pharaoh was in, his, he had already chosen to be hostile to the Israelites, and he chooses to, uh, to resist God's demand to free them. And so God is now going to harden his heart, which doesn't mean to take over his volition. What it means is that God is going to intensify or strengthen his volition so that he is going to fulfill what he wants to fulfill. He's going to carry it out. Uh, He's going to be able to be stubborn long enough uh, so that God can teach a few lessons in and through the, the Pharaoh's disobedience to God. Another example that comes up as we... Um, go through the passage is in verse 20 where it brings in an illustration from uh, Jeremiah uh, in terms of the potter and the clay from Jeremiah chapter 18. And again, this we went back and we looked at the context in Jeremiah 18 and saw that that was focused on national destiny, not individual justification. It didn't have to do with God forming some to go to heaven and others to have a destiny in the lake of fire, but that God was forming certain nations to accomplish certain purposes and that he was raising up nations and he also brought nations down according to his own purposes and his own timetable. And then uh, Paul applies that to the Jews and the Gentiles uh, starting in about verse uh, 22 down through 24, this focuses on uh, the national destinies that God has uh, for, for uh, the different nations. And then uh, he brings in the value of the, the Gentiles, starting in verse 25, in relation to the quotes that he uh, brings in from Hosea, because he is showing an application. This isn't the interpretation of the original context of the Hosea passage, but it's an application showing how God is going to uh, extend his grace beyond Israel, and he is going to uh, bring salvation to the Gentiles uh, to the Gentiles as well. And then we come to uh, closing statements in verses 27 and following, where we have a quote in verse uh, verse 27 from Isaiah 10:22 to 23 where uh, Isaiah prophesies that though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea the remnant will be saved again emphasizing that there is a subset of Israel that is going to be rightly related to God spiritually and they will find their ultimate deliverance again the word saved there doesn't mean justified it means reaching their ultimate deliverance But you don't get to phase three without phase one and phase two. So that's included, but that's not limited to the meaning of uh, of saved. And then uh, we come to the end of chapter 30, and the focus is on Christ. In the last quote from the Old Testament in verse 33, uh, imagery taken from uh, Isaiah uh, 8.14 and from... Uh, 28.16, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be, uh, will not be put to shame. Uh, he will not find himself humiliated. And so this brings us then to the tenth, 
the tenth chapter, and he's developed now the the foundation and God's plan for Israel, but that uh, Israel has not pursued righteousness on the basis of faith. That was verse thirty of chapter nine. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, because Israel was pursuing the law of righteousness on the basis of law. Now, that's going to come out again when we get into chapter 10, verse 3. For they, that is Israel as a nation, that doesn't mean every Jew, but nationally their corporate identity was that they were ignorant of God's righteousness and sought to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. So it's on the basis of works, not on the basis of grace. Now, when we get into Romans Chapter 11, uh, Paul's going to lay down a principle in verse 6 related to the remnant, that the remnant is saved according to the election of grace. So that idea of election is important to nail down in chapter 9 because we're going to hit it again in uh, chapter 11, verse 5. And then Paul explains it by saying that it's, elect- it's an election of grace because if it's by grace, it is no longer of works, but the Jews have been trying to do it on the basis of a righteousness of works, 9.30, 9.31, and 10.3. See how those threads are picked up again, and then they're woven back into his development in, in Romans 11.6. If it's by grace, it's no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer of grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Work and grace are mutually mutually exclusive. So some things that we've seen emphasized here and emphasized through chapter 10 is that what God promises, God fulfills. God will not go back on his promises to Israel, and the application is he won't go back on his promises to you and me. God is just as faithful to his promises to us, and he will fulfill them. Uh, God promised Israel a worldwide scattering in the fifth cycle of discipline, predicting that they would be disobedient and go into idolatry, and then God would have to discipline them by removing them from the land. This is seen in Leviticus 26, 27 to 39, and in Deuteronomy 29. Third, we saw that God promised that if Israel turned to him, then he would restore them to the land. They have to reverse course, turning back uh, to him, Teshuvah, uh, that he would restore them to the land. This is seen in Leviticus 26, 40 to 42. Fourth, we saw that God will bring them back, uh, will bring them back corporate, and they will, God will bring them back, and they will corporately recognize Jesus as Messiah and welcome him. In Matthew 23, 39, they will call upon the name of the Lord to deliver them, and this takes place at the end of the tribulation period or at the end of Daniel's 70th week when the remnant has fled to Basra. Now, I pointed this out. We had pictures. We had maps and everything that at the end of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to seek to destroy uh, every last year. This is part of Satan's ploy. Satan is defeated at the cross, but he is not going to just give up and say, okay, God, you won. What Satan wants to do is to prove that God really can't be God either. He can't control all these creatures who have their own volition. And uh, Satan certainly can. In fact, the chaos of Satan's world system 
uh, is great testimony that Satan really can't pull off this God thing that he's trying to pull off. But he wants to show that God really can't do it either. And the way he's going to prove that is by destroying every last Jew before God can fulfill the covenants and the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to David, uh, to the Jewish people regarding the land and in regarding to the new covenant. And if he can destroy all the Jewish people before Jesus comes back, before they turn to him, then he's going to checkmate God in the great chess game of human history. And so he's trying to destroy all the Jewish people through the Antichrist. The Jewish people follow the admonition of the Lord that when they see the abomination of desolation take place, when they see all these signs taking place, they're going to flee to the wilderness. They flee south through the Judean wilderness. Then they head east across the area south of the Dead Sea into those horrible um, uh, badlands of what is uh, what is um, uh, the modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan in the area of Basra and and Petra, where they are protected geographically to some degree by the t- horrible terrain. It's at that point, as the armies of the Antichrist seek to uh, destroy them, that they corporately turn. They're already individually saved. But now as a nation, as an ethnic entity, as a corporate entity, they turn to the Lord and they call upon him and they uh, call upon him to deliver them. And he comes down and destroys the armies of the Antichrist and then leads them in a victory march back up through the Judean wilderness to Jerusalem to destroy the what remains of the armies of the Antichrist and to destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet and to free those who are captive in Jerusalem. So this is uh, that turning to Jesus, calling upon him corporately, is when they uh, recognize who he is, and this is when they realize forgiveness for the national corporate sin of their rejection of Christ, as seen in Matthew chapter 12. Now, all of that is sort of the background and overview here. And the heart of Romans 10 are these three quotations from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, last time, remember, I said the important, it's so important to figure out who is being addressed in any passage of Scripture. Pa- the, the, the focus of any passage of Scripture is either going to be on telling people or illustrating how we are to get to heaven, or it's going to tell us how to live as a believer, or it's going to illustrate how to live as a believer. I mean, it's either about uh, justification or it's about the spiritual life. Those are everything in the Bible is talking about probably one of those two things. So in Deuteronomy 30, Moses is talking to a generation of believers who are going to go into the land uh, victorious. But he's warning them because they're still not quite where they should be spiritually, and they've been influenced negatively by their parents' generation, but not to the extent of their parents' generation. And so he warns them not to go seeking somewhere else for the word of God, but because he's telling them that Moses is telling them that it is near them. And this is summarized in verse uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, but the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart. 
Now we're going to get to this verse that we've looked at before in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, that the Lord, or that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, see mouth and heart, that comes out of verse 14. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, it's important at times to structure the text. There are a lot of different ways in which writers structure what they're saying, especially in different forms of, of poetry or in narrative. This is what's called the chiasm, where you have uh, two lines that intersect like in the form of an X or the Greek letter Chi, as it's pronounced by a lot of uh, English speakers, although the correct pronunciation, uh, according to modern translation and probably ancient translation, was key. And we know that from a number of different ways. Uh, one of the ways we know that is if you, if you were a, a, a scribe in a monastery and you were writing down what the uh, what the uh, head monk was was. Uh, reciting and you're writing it down. A lot of times you can't. Your ear doesn't distinguish between set, distinct vowels. So, you, so if you hear a vowel one way, you might put down uh, confuse it with another vowel. And so we can look at the kinds of transcription errors that were made, and we can figure out how vowels were produced by the way they confused certain vowels and certain words because they sounded similar. Other vowel sounds did not sound similar. And a whole science has grown up around that in the last 20 or 30 years. And this gives us a pretty good idea, especially when it seems to fit the pronunciation of modern, uh, modern Greek. The Greek that most students learn uh, and how to pronounce the letters in a, in a, in a Greek um, first-year textbook, that pronunciation scheme was developed by a, a, a scholar in the, at the time of the early Reformation by the name of Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus never, ever, ever heard anybody speak Greek, never. He invented his pronunciation scheme out of thin air. It's pure imagination. And, uh, and in recent years, there's been more of a move to uh, impact the, our pronunciation of Greek with modern, uh, modern pronunciation. So anyway, what we see here is a parallelism where the first line and the last line are reiterating the same thought. So they're indicated as A and A prime. The middle two lines also mirror the same thought. They're synonymous. This is really important. I want you to think this through because we all come to this text. In fact, I misspoke. I had forgotten how I taught this before and hadn't gotten here yet. And I misspoke a couple of times early on in this, in, when I was uh, teaching Romans 9 towards the end, thinking that this was justification until I got back into it and realized this isn't justification. This always throws people off. If you take this line all by itself, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, it sounds like that could be justification. But when you put it in context as a synonymous parallel to this line, then when we look at this word saved here, 
That saved is not talking about phase one salvation. It's talking about phase two salvation. And if this is phase two salvation because it's parallel with believing unto righteousness, this righteousness isn't justification righteousness. It's the experiential righteousness that we get as a result of spiritual growth. Now, that's a distinction that's critical for us to understand. It's not to get to heaven, we just have to have justification righteousness. To get a pat on the back and a well-done, good and faithful servant and to have any measure of rewards and to have responsibilities to rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom, we have to have experiential righteousness. That's what's produced by the filling of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, and that is what has eternal value in terms of, of gold, silver, and precious stones in the imagery of the great of the uh, judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So this means that this whole passage is talking about just phase 2, and that makes so much sense in the whole context of this uh, of these three chapters that were Moses, remember the illustration of Moses in terms of uh, in terms of God's election back in uh, Romans chapter 9 where God talked about, said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. The context of that quote, that statement by God to Moses is found back in Exodus 33:19, and it was in the context of blessing the Jewish people are not blessing them after they had failed him when the gold, in the golden calf incident. They were already justified. This was a spiritual life issue. So spiritual life is the theme that runs all through uh, this section of, of Romans and the corporate deliverance of Israel. All the way through here, we're going to see this is so important to understand. This is the corporate Israel. So the parallel between you will be saved and unto righteousness keeps us on track that this is a phase two or phase three issue. And it also applies to Gentiles. It applies to you because God's grace to the Jew is the same as God's grace to the Gentile. And he is the same Lord who richly provides for all of us. And just as God will deliver Israel from the wrath to come, so he delivers Gentiles from present-day wrath. This is the whole focus of Romans chapter 1, 19, that God's wrath is being revealed to those who have rejected uh, his uh, general revelation. And the way to be delivered from his wrath, which is his judgment in time, is to call upon him to deliver us. So uh, this is from Joel 2.32. It's applied directly to Israel that uh, their deliverance will come, uh, though, at the end of the tribulation period. Then Paul uh, also is going to talk about a quote from a passage in uh, uh, Isaiah, and he is going to quote here from uh, Isaiah 25.8 and 9, and bring in this issue of of, uh, of the order of the message. How shall they call upon those in whom they have not believed? How they, shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how they, shall they hear without a preacher? There's an order there. First of, and he, this is listed in reverse order because it's saying, okay, the Jews eventually will need to call upon him. 
What do they have to do to call upon Jesus? Well, first of all, they have to believe on him. That's a prior act. So before they reach the point of calling on him to deliver them, they have to believe. Well, how do they get to the point of belief? Well, somebody has to give them something to believe. Dwight Pentecost, who's been a professor at Dallas Seminary for uh, probably before I was born, he's now 94, he still teaches one course a semester, he now has throat cancer, so that slowed him down a little bit. He was teaching two a semester, now he's down to one. But Dr. P, as we called him, used to uh, end his classes frequently by giving a little challenge to the men uh, as they were on, on a Friday, as they were going to go into some kind of ministry or teaching on the weekend. He, he would always say, give them something to believe. I modified that. I said, give them the gospel to believe. Give them the Bible to believe. Something to me just sounded too, too generic. But uh, they, who's going to give them something to believe? A preacher. And the word for preacher means someone who is announcing or proclaiming something. It's not talking about a rhetorical style that follows three points in a poem. It's talking about the proclamation uh, of, of the truth. And then where does the preacher come from? Well, he is sent. So I reverse the order in this slide, and first of all, the preacher is sent. God commissions preachers, pastor teachers in this age. They proclaim the truth, uh, and he, they're commissioned via their spiritual gift to pastor teacher. Just because they have a pastor a gift doesn't mean they're qualified, though, to be a pastor. They need to be trained. They need to be educated. They need to learn how to think. They learn, need to learn how to read. They can't just go out and, and repeat what somebody else has, has said. Uh, everybody does that at some early stage when they're an infant, but as you grow and mature, you, you have your own personality, your own style. Uh, Peter wasn't going around in an attempt to try to write like Paul because he wasn't Paul. He was Peter. James didn't write like anybody else. John certainly didn't. Uh, this idea that everybody needs to sound like somebody who's a, a, a great, effective teacher is just garbage. You, 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 a person should be themselves. God used each writer of Scripture within their own personality and didn't say, Nehemiah, you need to be a little bit more like Moses. Or Daniel, you need to be more of a weeper like Jeremiah. Uh, God didn't do that. So he, he commissions uh, get in the church age. He gives a gift to pastor, teacher, but then you have to go through the process of learning the message so you can proclaim it. So the preacher is sent, he makes a proclamation. People then hear the proclamation, some believe. Those who believe then eventually in their spiritual life, they call on the name of the Lord to deliver them from wrath. And so uh, Paul concludes in verse 18, uh, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. The sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. This is that confession, too, that's made with the mouth. So he says, but I say, in verse 19, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Notice how he's bringing the Gentiles in to the scenario, that, that God has a plan for the Gentiles, and he's going to use them to provoke the Jewish people who were negative uh, to anger and to jealousy. 
And then in in 10.20, uh, Paul says, another quote from Isaiah 65.1, I was found... But those who did, by those who did not seek me, I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That's God's grace. God is making his truth known even to those who claim not to want it. Remember the Apostle Paul? He claimed not to want it for a long time, up until the time the resurrected, uh, glorified Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road of Damascus, and he went from hostility to acceptance in a heartbeat. I would say in an eye blink, but he was blind blinded by it. Uh, then in verse 21, to Israel he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient contrary people. That's the grace of God. It extends itself, even in witnessing. There are too many Christians who are too impatient. We give somebody the gospel once and they don't respond, and by giving them the gospel once, what we've done is we've just walked by them and said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, and we just keep right on going. We just think that if we throw it out at them, somehow they'll catch it. And that's not right. God woos people over with the Jewish people over hundreds of years, with individuals 10, 20, 30, 40 years before some people finally accept the gospel. And so he continues to extend his grace. Now this leads, remember there's no chapter division, there are no verse divisions, immediately to the next verse in verse 1 of chapter 11 where Paul says I say then he's expressing a conclusion in light of everything I've just covered Paul then reaches a conclusion he says I say then has God cast away his people and the implication of that sentence without his answer the way he structures it it, the answer would be no God has not cast away his people, but to make sure we get the point, Paul gives the answer, and he says meganoita in the Greek, which is an extremely strong way of saying no, not at all. That would be impossible. God has not cast away his people. Now, this is part of going back to the basic Theme verse for Romans, where Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Notice that's not just justification, that's all three phases. It's the, it, the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So from the very beginning, he's emphasized that this message is a message for the Jewish people. I want you to notice something else there. He's, he's talking about the gospel. Is this, is the, does the word gospel here mean simply, is it restricted to the message of how to get justified? No, because he's talking about how to get saved, which is more than justification. Here's an example in the scripture where gospel means more than the, just the message of what do I need to believe in order to make sure I go to heaven. It's the full-orbed gospel. It's the whole Christian life. It's not only what Christ did to justify us, but what that means in terms of our life after justification on into eternity. So it's a broad use of the term gospel, not a narrow use of the word gospel. Paul does that quite a bit. 
Romans 1.17, he said, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So God relates, I mean, Paul is relating Israel to this theme of righteousness all the way through. He mentions and talks about Israel in the first part where he relates Israel to the righteousness of God and justification, as we've, we've seen this whole chart. In the middle part, dealing with spiritual life, he also talks about uh, the Jews, he talks about Israel, and he relates that to the righteousness of God and sanctification as he contrasts law versus grace, law in Romans 7, grace and the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. Uh, in 8, 18 to 39, Paul relates Israel to the righteousness of God and glorification, which sets up the section on uh, Israel, where he relates in 9 to 11, relates Israel to the righteousness of God and its vindication. And then at the end, he relates Israel to the righteousness of God and its practical application. So in Romans 11, 1, he says, I say then, I say is the Greek verb lego, Un is the word usually translated therefore. And whenever we see a therefore, we need to see what it's there for. It's a conclusion. He's going to say, I say, therefore, in light of everything said in 9 and 10, has God permanently cast away his people? No. And then he's going to use himself as an illustration. He says, I'm a Jew. If God were permanently casting away his people, then I wouldn't be saved. Since I am a Jew, then this shows that God has not permanently cast away his people. So uh, he goes on to say, I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So a couple of observations here. First of all, that conclusion, that Lego un in verse 1, draws an inference from a, a Allah lego, but I say, in 10, 18, and 19. 10, 18, he says, but I say. You ought to circle that. Those of you taking the Bible study methods course, you ought to observe that both verses 18, 10, 18, and 10, 19 start with the same phrase, but I say, but I say. And so he, you have, but I say, but I say, and then therefore I say in chapter 11, verse 1. So that fits together. And each of these statements refers to corporate ethnic Israel. We're not talking about the individual justification of Jews anywhere in this section. We're talking about the corporate deliverance of Israel in relationship to God's plan as outlined in the covenants, as as uh, seen in the ministry and, and based on the ministry of Jesus as the Messiah. So here's a uh, Romans 10, 18, and 19 lead into that. Then the second observation we have here is the references in 11, 1 to his people, and then in 11, 2, his people whom he foreknew. This indicates a corporate view again. We're not viewing these Jews as individual Jews getting saved, but as God's plan for the nation. Third, we have Paul's use of the example from 1 Kings when we get down to uh, about the third verse. He brings in Elijah. Uh, so verse 1, he rejects the idea that God's permanently rejected his people. 
because first argument, because I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of, of, of Benjamin. This is similar to what he says in Philippians 3, 5, where he says that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee. Paul does not back away from his ethnic Jewish background. Now, verse 2 goes into the next statement. Now he states it positively, God has not cast away his people, but he adds a new thought. Whom he foreknew. Now we're going to get into uh, issues related to the doctrine of election. So we'll wait and come back to that because in verse 5 he'll talk about the election of grace. And we want to tie these things together, but that's not something you hit real fast. So we'll break here and come back next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to review, to reflect upon your, your plan for Israel, that it's based upon grace, not works and that through them you have blessed the entire world, that they were the custodians of Scripture, and it's through them the Messiah came, and it's therefore through them that we have salvation. Father, we thank you for uh, the challenge that we have to uh, be faithful in our witness, not only to Jews but also to Gentiles, but also faithful in our walk with you, not to do as some have done in treating your word lightly, but to respond positively to everything that's taught in your word that we may uh, continue to grow in preparation for our future destiny to rule and reign with you in the millennial kingdom and then into eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.